Well, I've had an interesting week, which you don't normally do, but I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine, a friend of mine, a guy I've met through the Y and through some other places, and we were talking about church. And so he started talking about he really didn't like church, didn't really feel comfortable there, had lots of sort of angst against church. And so the passage we're going to talk about today is in direct opposition of why he thinks church is bad, and it's why church should never be bad for anybody. And so we're going to look at this passage today and just talk about what does it look like for us to live out the Christian life in front of this world that really, in some senses, does not want anything to do with it. How do we live that out? So we're going to start by, let me read uh, Matthew 9, 35 through 38, and hopefully all of you have heard this passage before, but it's a, it's a great passage. Jesus went out through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. So I want you to imagine something. If we had drones back when Jesus walked around, imagine watching Jesus with his disciples in his first, in 35, that he was wandering around to towns and all over the place and villages, teaching, preaching, walking in synagogues, and healing people. And you almost imagine a dark, like if you're on a dark mountainside, and here comes a little fire that's lit. Then there's another one that's lit, and all of a sudden things get brighter and brighter and brighter. That's what I imagine Jesus was doing walking around, because every time he walked to a place, he showed a little bit of heaven to what was going on, to what he did. He healed sicknesses. He healed diseases. I mean, can you imagine being lame most of your life, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and you're actually whole, and you can run and do other things you could never have done? Can you imagine being broken emotionally, spiritually, and he comes in that touch and that message, all of a sudden you're freed? I mean, that's what Jesus was doing the entire time he walked on this planet. Walking around, showing us glimpses of what the world is going to be like in the end when he comes back. So that's what's happening. And so when you think about that, that's what the church should actually look like. And so if you imagine like a drone just following him around and imagine the excitement and the thrill and just the fact that they encountered Christ, that that news would spread like crazy. Here's a guy, a God, maybe they probably call him a guy, not a God, but who could heal you, who could make your life better. Now imagine, that's what the church should look like. Right? We should be a place where people come and are healed. Not necessarily from their physical ailments, we don't necessarily have that gift, but I mean, but mentally, spiritually, there should be a place where they find love and acceptance. Right? It should be a place where literally no matter what they're coming to the table with, our response is out of love. Our response is out of the fact that we want them to hear the good news. So there's this great story, and, I, and I'm not sure I could have done it, but it's a great story. So there's a, it's a, there's a villager in Africa who's in a village. He travels far distance to go do some work, and while he's away, he comes to know Jesus. Someone preaches the word, and he comes to understand the saving faith of Christ, and he goes back to his village. So he goes around hut to hut, telling everybody what's happening. And they are so pissed off at what he's telling them that they drag him into the middle of the village and beat him to nearly death. Then they take him and throw him in the jungle. A couple days, he says he revives. He's bloody beaten, you know. And he gets up, and his first thought in his head is, I must have told him that wrong. And he gets up, and he goes back to the village. Because he wasn't worried about the message. He was pretty sure he did something that 
wasn't presenting Christ well enough or showing them who Christ was, and he missed something. So he goes back into the village. And the village literally responds the same way. All the men start beating him again. But then these ladies come and protect him and begin to heal him. And in the end of the story, like the village, for the most part, comes to know Christ as their Savior. And they did that because what did this man see? And it's what Jesus saw, right? When you look at, you look at 36, the first statement we're going to look at is, it just says, when he saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds. We live in a culture today where we don't look at people. We want to know how they're looking at us and how they're perceiving us. There's this great app called Be Real, and I say that's totally sarcastic. If you didn't get that in my voice, this stupid app called Be Real, because you're never real otherwise. And some, I work with high school kids, and they're great, but this is what they do. All of a sudden, they're like, picture, and then they're like, then they, I guess it takes a picture of what you're looking at or what you're doing. But we spend so much of our lives looking at who? Me. We don't really look at anybody else. We really care about anybody else. If you're a college or high school student, I'm going to give you just a little advice that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Nobody cares about you that much. They're not really paying attention to you that much. Honestly, they're not. I know that you think they are. They're more worried about how they perceive, how they look. But think about what Jesus did. Jesus walked around and he kept seeing these people made in his image, suffering and struggling to live their lives. Right? He saw them. Just like we should be able to see people, not at the, which I'm guilty of without question, as an annoyance in my way, I'm trying to get somewhere kind of person. But the reality is to see people like Jesus saw people, people who are wounded, people who are damaged, people who are hurt, people who more than anything else on this planet need to know about their Savior, Jesus. Because nothing else will set them free except Christ. And so the first thing I want you to think about is the church are we are ours even open to the things God has put in our lives, the people God has put right in front of us? Are we always constantly looking by them? Are we always constantly looking at ourselves, trying to figure out how to, whatever we need to do? Jesus literally saw people, which we need to do. And because he saw them, what was his next reaction? He had compassion on them. Jesus didn't, doesn't do what we did. And it's right after 36, he said he saw the crowd, then he had compassion on them. He saw them in their need and in their hurt. My wife does great at this. I am absolutely horrific at this. Because someone will be driving me crazy. I'm like, we need to get the license away. Or whatever. I mean, and kids like, well, I don't know. Maybe they had a family crisis. And I'm just like, stop. Like, but the reality is she's right. We don't know what's going on in other people's lives. We don't know why they're reacting the way they're reacting. We have no idea. Maybe they just got a cancer diagnosis. Maybe they just got divorced. Maybe there was someone just died. I mean, we have no idea. Maybe their mom just slapped them in the face and threw them out of the house. I have no idea. But if I saw people like Jesus saw people, if I had compassion, I would look beyond the annoyance that's causing me and see this image of God in front of me in pain. Just like the church is supposed to do, right? It's why we are here, to show the world Jesus, right? And what we spend so much time doing is making ourselves look good. I'll give you a great example. This is very true of the church in general. And I should say this is probably very true of pastors, but 
not all pastors, just so don't classify everyone like this, but I was just talking to a buddy of mine in, in um, South Carolina. And he said it's fascinating that the lack of repentance and forgiveness among leadership in churches. Now, I'm not talking about, and this is not saying you've been, like, but it was just interesting because this man who I'm talking to has issues with his father, and his father's a pastor, and he's a pastor, and, like, they have huge issues. But his father can never say, I'm, ever say I'm sorry. He just makes up an excuse for why he did what he did. And it's just interesting, when we have compassion and we see people made in the image of God, what stops us from going, hey, I am sorry that I offended you. I am sorry that I responded that way. I am sorry, whatever. Because we know we're not perfect. We know we have issues. Right? If, you, if you have a friend, you have issues. Unless you are friends with only trees, maybe you're doing all right. But otherwise, you've offended, you've offended everybody in your life at some point. Through your reaction, tone, whatever. But we've all done it. Why is it so hard? But compassion drives us to see that person want to know Christ. And when he ta- in, the Bible, in the Bible verse, actually, in passion, in this verse, is used like 12 times in the New Testament. One time it's used about the Samaritan's passage, when the Samaritan's coming and he stops to help the, the guy in the road who's got beat up. That's the one time it's used one way. Otherwise, the other 10 are parables. And it's always about this sort of this gut reaction that you almost have to respond and I, if you're a parent, you've felt that many times. Your, kids start, your kid gets hurt. Your first reaction is you want to do everything you can to take away their pain, right? It's just the reaction. It just comes from your gut, and you've you got to do something. That's the kind of compassion he's talking about. If you think about it for right now, do you have compassion like that towards anybody outside of your circle? I mean, I hope some of us are saying yes, but I mean, in general we're not even paying attention to the outside of our circle. It's not worth our time. I mean, think about that for a minute. God has put you guys in jobs, in locations, in areas that you're surrounded with people. Do you ever think about where they're at? Do you ever think about if they die tomorrow, they are going to a place that is crazy bad. We can't even imagine it. A place void of God for eternity. So there's this, this guy, his name is Kevin Carty. There's a movie about him, but the, he literally took all these pictures. He won a couple uh, Pulitzer Prizes. There's one picture of a huge, like, eagle or vulture following this, like, emaciated little girl crawling on the ground, and he won a Pulitzer Prize. Well, he ended up killing himself. And this is what he wrote in his suicide note. He left it behind, and he goes, it, it is a liturgy of nightmares and dark visions, a clutching attempt at an autobiography, self-analysis, explanation, excuse. After coming home from New York, he wrote, he was depressed, without a phone, no money, no money for child support, no money for debt, no money. And he, go, and he goes, I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain, of starving or wounded children, of trigger-happy madmen, or killer executioners. And he goes, I have gone to join Ken if I'm lucky. Now think about it. Why did he kill himself? He killed himself because he had no hope. 
He saw the evil of the world firsthand in probably ways we've never seen it. And in, and in the end, he had no, no category to do anything with it, and he took his own life. Because what did he need? He needed to know that the Savior is still coming. Right? He needed to know that these little fires that are going around, at one point it's going to be a huge blaze, and God's going to come back and make everything right. Right? That's what he needed to know. That's what many of us need to know, that this pain, this agony, this crazy life we live will come to an end. And not in that way. It will come to an end because God's going to make it right. God's going to heal every relationship. God's going to heal all your things in your life. Right? It's found in Jesus. And if our church lived like that, represented Christ like that, what would happen? Crazy things. And this is what would happen. After he's saying this, he, was, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He understood their plight. So he's going around trying to make things right. And then literally he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Now, I'm not a farmer. He didn't grow up in Nebraska. I know you guys know farm technology perfectly and all this stuff. But what does that mean? That means the harvest is good and we need to go get it. I don't know of any farmer that when the harvest is plentiful, they sit inside and watch TV the rest of the year and forget about their crops, right? They go get it. And what Jesus said is, but the workers are few, which in some senses means we're not doing our jobs. We're not doing our jobs because we don't see it and we're not compassionate towards it as a church, right? But he says, and the, but this is what, it's fascinating. He goes, he goes, ask the Lord of the harvest, which is his father, therefore to send out workers into the field. So he literally says to them, pray. Pray for the harvesters. That doesn't seem that hard. Just pray. Pray for the harvesters. And maybe God will pick you. Maybe God will tell you to go. And this doesn't mean you got to go to China or, you know, someplace other than America. It may be walk next door, talk to your neighbor. It may be quit ignoring the guy you see every day of your life for the last 20 years at your job. Because you don't know how he's going to respond. And you don't want to ruin that chemistry you got going. When you think about it, Jesus did not care how people treated him. He went knowingly and willingly to his death. Right? Literally, he knew he was going to get the absolute snot kicked out of him. What did he do? He got a table with his friends. He sat around and drank coffee and, and determined whether he should go or not. He literally looked at God in a prayer in the, the garden and goes, I don't want to do it. And God says, do it. He goes, okay. And he gets up and he goes. What holds you back? I'll tell you what doesn't hold me back. So this is actually a true story in my life, and so don't think I'm lost of that story, but it's actually totally true. When I was in high school, and I think I've told this story before, I had a friend named Brian. We were in lab class together, being idiots like normal sophomore boys. And Brian one day goes, hey, I know you go to youth group, whatever. Tell me about Jesus. But it was Friday, three. It's time to go home. I didn't want to hang out and have this conversation. So I literally looked at Brian and said, why don't I tell you Monday? Well, for Brian, Monday actually never came. He died Saturday. 
But in hindsight, I think, what did I say no for? I'm lazy, didn't have compassion, didn't see what was right in front of my face, and I wanted to go play hockey with my brothers and eat food. And so I looked at, my, I looked at Brian and said, I'll tell you Monday. But you think this passage totally describes me in the opposite way. I didn't see what was right in front of me, and I didn't have compassion. Literally, God said, not me asking Brian. Brian literally goes, hey, tell me about Jesus. And I go, let's do it Monday. He got hit by a drunk driver riding his bike Saturday afternoon. So I'm always worried about screwing that one up again. Now, granted, and I want to encourage you something. You are, no, you are not responsible for anybody's soul. And I say that God is. Just so you know that. You can't do it. You'll never have a good enough talk, good enough presentation, whatever. It's not how it works. God is working in their hearts. But what I don't want to be is the guy who says to God, I don't want to do it because I'm scared of whatever. Maybe I'm going to miss some pizza. Whatever the heck was going through my mind as a dumb 16-year-old. But the reality is I want to challenge you to think about something. There is, no more, there is nothing more important that you could share with anybody on this planet. Do you actually believe that? If I could tell you, if Andy Wade is a financial advisor, if Andy Wade could tell you the one stock right now that you could buy for 50 cents and that he could guarantee in two years it'll be worth a million dollars a share, you better be more willing to tell them about Jesus than to buy that stock tip or give them that stock tip. Because the million dollars won't save you. But yeah, that's not how we think. We think about how to make my life, your life, easier, more convenient, more whatever your dream was to be. But that's what we think about. Sharing Christ or, or presenting Christ is using that at the top of the list. Not, and some of you it is, which is awesome, but, but it's not usually at the top of our lists. And you ask yourself, why is that? Because in some senses, we don't believe it. We don't actually believe that's the answer. We don't actually believe that's where hope comes from. We know it. We don't actually believe it. Because we're more afraid of the consequences of what, what might happen. So there's this guy at this gym I work out at, and he is 79 years old. His name is Frosty. The man never shuts up and tells everybody about Jesus. And he is great. Still lifts. His big pride is that he's the oldest man in the YMCA gym lifting weights. I think that's true because who else does that? But, but it's interesting watching Frosty because the man, and maybe because he's 79 and he has no filters left because he just doesn't care. Everyone he talks with, he has conversations with. They're having lines, playing chess, whatever he's doing, and he's having conversations about Jesus. And every time I come up, he knows I'm a pastor, we talk, we try to figure out how to do things together and do stuff. But, but what's interesting is he doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't. He doesn't care. What he does care about is the fact that he knows if they die, all is lost. And you think about it, if we were at church, when we were the people like studying these little fires of hope 
about Jesus. And we, in our midst or in our presence, we make people's lives better simply by being in their lives, by the way we respond, by the way that we act, by the way we treat them, by the way we ask to be forgiven or we ask sorry when we do something incorrectly or whatever. Imagine what that would do in people's lives. Most people, when they talk to you about why they don't like the church, why they don't like Christians, because they at some point have been offended, rightly or wrongly. Sometimes they're, 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 why they're offended seems crazy, but, but it's typically because some Christian treated them poorly. Think about it. We could easily remedy that. Not that, you, not that you're going to switch. You're not going to change what God tells us to believe in. But, like, but if every time they had an interaction with you, it was one of kindness, love, compassion, thoughtfulness. They, like you've just felt it. You're attracted to that. That's what you, makes Redeemer attractive. You walk in here and people mob you. They'll talk to you. If you're an introvert, I'm sorry. Because people will just talk to you. I had one friend come one time. He said, he goes, I don't like your church. And he goes, because I hate people. <laughs> and he said, I knew when that person started talking to me, he goes, they literally wanted to know me better. He goes, I'm not into that. He goes, I want the, hey, how you doing? And then move on, conversation. And he goes, it's crazy. But even him, who's not a believer, said that church always made an impression on me. Because they genuinely loved me, and they didn't even know me. That's the message that Jesus is trying to get us to do in this harvest, right? We should be the ones that start these fires, that God gives us the power to interject ourselves in people's lives and make a difference. For him, not so you can look good, but imagine if you started doing that in your own life with the people God has right in front of you. The interaction they have with you constantly makes them think about who Jesus is. That you're constantly marrying our Savior. It'd be crazy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for the time we get together. We thank you for the fact that you love us and care about us. We thank you for how much you adore us. We thank you for the fact that as we stand here today, we know we're failures. We know that we do not live up to the calling you have in our lives. But I pray that you will make us people that first of all love you beyond belief. And that because of our love for you, our willingness and our desire to show that love to everybody else is fantastic. And, it, and it's, we can't contain it. We thank you so much for the fact that you love us. We thank you so much that we can come and worship here together. And we uh, ask that you uh, bless this church and that we can be a church that represents you well, Lord. In your name, amen.